Hi, Pastor John here. Thanks for joining us today. Let me ask you this. How do you perceive God? If you could draw a picture of him, what would he look like? Would you even try to draw a picture of him? While scripture warns us against making images of God, there are passages in the Bible in which God describes himself. Today we take a look at Psalm 103 and see how God gives us a divinely inspired image of who he is. By the way, we had another of those pesky technical issues today, so our sermon comes to you in audio format only. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 103. While you're turning there, let me tell you about a time that we visited another church and attended their Sunday school. We sat down in the Sunday school. The room had 12, 13 people in it. Uh, And the Sunday school teacher started handing out sheets of paper and pencils. And he said, now what we're going to do is we're going to draw a picture of God. And right away, my flags went up, and I thought, I'm not going to draw a picture of God. And, uh, but it did lead me to ask myself, you know, how, how would I describe God if somebody asked me to describe God? How do we perceive God? So, you know, we're clearly prohibited from making images of God by Scripture, uh, but the Bible is full of images of God. And since we believe the Scriptures are inspired, Uh, These images we see in the Bible are God describing himself, and each one of them is a blessing, and that includes our passage today. Um, The title for our sermon is, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. We'll get pretty deep into that. So Psalm 103 is ascribed to David, works in conjunction with Psalm 104. They go hand in hand should be sung as a hymn. Now, this is an important part of how we read and listen to this psalm. Uh, Some think it was written after that incident with Bathsheba. And is David meditating on how God moves in his life and the world around him? It's an incredible response to a tragic situation. David has sinned with Bathsheba, and he repented. But shortly afterwards, things got even worse. And out of David's heartbreak over his sin and the devastating grief of what came next comes this beautiful description of God. Now, notice it. Even in his pain and grief, David worships. Kind of reminds you of Job, doesn't it? Uh, Because you see, the first chapter of Job, Job loses everything. I mean, he's got his... His helpers lined up, and each one has worse news than the one before him. And uh, Job's response to a devastating loss is he rends his garment, falls to the ground, and worships God. Matter of fact, he says, even though God would slay me, I would bless him. So Job worships in his grief, and we see David worshiping in his grief here. So our passage contains four descriptors of God and uh, our relationship with him. So in verses 1 through 5, we will see our total commitment to him. In verses 6 through 14, we'll see his total grace towards us. In verses 15 through 19, we'll see our total dependence upon him. And in verses 20 through 22, we'll see his total sovereignty over, well, over everything. So let's take a look at our first descriptor, number one, and our total commitment, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now read this carefully. The Hebrew word for bless means to praise most warmly with a deep sense of gratitude. So this is David making a call to worship. He's calling himself to worship from deep down inside. And in 
as he does this, he's teaching us something about worship. Even if, maybe particularly in this case, worship may seem to be a difficult thing to do. Uh, So what we see is this deep commitment to thank God for everything. Uh, You know, this is a theme that runs through Scripture. We're to give thanks in all things. Paul talks about it in in his writings. And uh, not just to thank him for everything. This just isn't going to be a surface thank you. It's to thank him with the very fiber of our being. This is coming from deep down inside David. And to recognize that God is holy, beautifully, wonderfully, perfectly holy and pure. And that means everything he does is holy. So this sort of worship, this sort of thanks, takes some concentration. It takes some devoted time. You know, we call the time we spend uh, daily with God in our reading and our prayer devotions. This is time that is devoted supremely to God, time reserved just for us to ponder on who God is, to study his word, let it sink in, to change us, to transform us, time to allow the Holy Spirit to work on our hearts. That takes some concentration. And as we slow down, as we focus on God and give him thanks, as we love him the way he loves us, he loves us unconditionally, And he calls us to love him unconditionally. Our love for God should not depend upon our circumstances. It should depend on who he is and what he's done for us. So as we love him the way he loves us, we begin to then notice a change. Um, And this is what David goes through. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So we praise God warmly from deep in our soul. Uh, We let what comes pouring out of our heart, remind us of the benefits of a relationship with God. Let it remind us of the unfettered, unearned grace that we have received. David says there's clear evidence that we have received this grace. In verse 3, he says, he talks about the God who forgives all your iniquity. Uh, He says, all your iniquity. He doesn't say some of your iniquity. He doesn't say God holds some forgiveness back because maybe we've done things that are unforgivable. But he said God forgives all our iniquity and heals all our diseases. Uh, So David has committed grievous sins and he's been forgiven. And so have we. We've committed grievous sins and we've been forgiven. And as painful as this moment is for David, his life is a shambles. And it causes him to grieve, but he knows that God is a God who, in verse 4, redeems your life from the pit, that's from the grave, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So he's a God who rescues us from the grave, that's the pit. Not only that, but he crowns us with his steadfast love and mercy. We wear it on top of our head for the whole world to see. These are symbols to the world that we are redeemed and we are his. He says God completes us. Uh, He perfects us with his good, a goodness that is pure and holy. And all these things serve to energize us, not as some mystical type of fountain of youth, but as a way to give us strength to do those things that he calls us to do. 
So I love the imagery that David uses here. Uh, he talks about the eagle. Uh, now, I don't know if you've ever seen an eagle in flight. They are incredible. They are majestic. Uh, they have a wingspan of about six feet, and they're incredibly strong. And they soar uh, on the updrafts and the downdrafts for long periods of time. It seems like they can just float up there forever. And the people of David's time would stand in awe of their strength and their endurance. And the implications of the image of the eagle are clear. David says, worship the Lord with all your might, give him thanks in all things, and he will sustain you. He will give you strength. The first descriptor of God is absolutely stunning. Uh, But in order to see this and appreciate it, to be blessed by it, we have to be committed to him, all of us, all the way, all the time, regardless of our circumstances. When we do, we see an incredible grace coming from God. And it is an extensive. How extensive is that grace? It is total. That's our second descriptor, his total grace, verses 6 through 14. Verse 6 says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, these are expressions of God's character and nature. He works. He does righteousness is what this means. Why does he do righteousness? Because he is righteous. He is righteous and he is righteousness. David sees the evidence of God's righteousness going back in his people all the way to the Exodus. He reminds us of that in verse 7 where he says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, God's people were in Egypt. Uh, They were under Egyptian slave drivers. Uh, They were oppressed and he delivered them. Uh, But you know what? He didn't just deliver him out of Egypt. His actions uh, among his people didn't end at the shores of the Red Sea. But he continued to put his righteousness on display, even as his children consistently turned away from him. Verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So all these things that David says here are the things God does because they are the things God is. They are endemic to his character and nature. And now David reverts again to some very beautiful imagery. He says for as, in verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Now, we need to view this verse through first century eyes because uh, they saw the sky entirely different than ours. When I look up at the sky, I know that there's an end to the atmosphere. There's a vacuum of space beyond it. Uh, but they didn't know that. To them, the sky went on forever. There was no thoughts of the limits of the atmosphere, no thoughts of the planets floating around out there. Uh, And so this doesn't mean that that the scripture is inaccurate or wrong. We've got to remember David's drawing a picture. He's writing a song. He's using a metaphor to describe God's love, which is greater than anything anyone can ever imagine. It extends far beyond what we can see, far beyond anything that we can understand. It extends so far that his love separates us from our sin. We see this in verse 12. He separates us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Uh, 
Now, contemporary teaching tells us this verse uses east and west because if you go north, if you continue to go north far enough, you will eventually start going south and then and then end up going north again. In other words, you know, the picture is, you know, if you go north, you revisit these areas. Um, and if, if you go south, you, you, the same thing happens. Uh, so, uh, but if you travel east, you will perpetually go east. Now, and all that's supposed to be a picture of how God separates us from our sins. Uh, he never goes back to revisit them. That, that's not a bad picture, and it's true, but you would have, Dave, you know, trying to explain this to people in David's time, they had them scratching their heads because they had no idea that we live globe. Uh, so to the Hebrews, east would be the primary orientation. It would be the top of the compass, not north. East was the primary orientation because that's where the sun rose. And the sun gave life. It brought warmth. It grew plants. The sun would sustain you. The sun would invigorate you. The Hebrew word for east means place of rising, or it can mean in front of. Now, the Hebrew word for west is also used for evening or behind. So the image David wants us to see is us facing east toward the horizon and the rising sun while our sins are placed behind us on the opposite horizon, as far apart as we can possibly be from our sins. Why does God do this? Well, he does it because he loves us. As a father shows, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Oh, wait a minute. What just happened here? Uh, We were on a roll. uh, We were talking about God's grace, his love for us. And now we're dust. And what David's trying to say here is that God knows us. He formed us. Scripture tells us he formed us in a womb. He reached down into the womb and put the two first cells together. This was all an action of his sovereign authority. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, But he knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He has known us since he formed us. And our time here is limited. And we all know that to be true. David's giving us a reminder that our time is limited, yet God has made a way for us to be with him forever. It's an indication that there's something beyond this mortal coil. There's something beyond this mortal life. And it comes to us by his grace, which is total. His grace covers everything we've done and everything we will do. And he does it because that is who he is. And we are the beneficiaries of his character. We benefit from who God is. He loves us, and he knows our time here is limited. And because there is nothing we can do to preserve or extend that time, we are totally dependent upon God's grace. So that leads us to our third descriptor, which is our total dependence, verses 15 through 19. As for man, verse 15, his days are like grass, He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So, more imagery from David here, uh, describing how fleeting and temporary our lives are. Uh, James picks up on this theme. Uh, He says, we are but a mist that appears in a little time and then vanishes. 
So, lest you think too much of yourself later on today and begin thinking of things that you've accomplished and everything, remember that we're missed. I mean, in the, the scheme of things, in all the creation, we're not even a dot. Uh, we appear for a little time and then vanish. So that, that would seem hopeless, except for in verse 17, David says, But the steadfast love, the love he has for us of the Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Those Now, we're not talking about a trembling, quaking in our boots, God is going to smite me fear. You know how much I love that word. Uh, this is a reverent awe um, of the glory of God, a, a, a deep, hidden respect for who he is. Uh, so everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The image David draws is of an eternity of love for those who believe in God. Uh, for those who have confessed their sin, have repented, and acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they show their belief by, verse 18, keeping his covenant and remembering to do his commandments. Uh, the Lord has established, verse 19, his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So God's kingdom knows no boundaries. His love is endless. And so is his grace. It is what sustains us when we fail, what protects us when we are in danger, what preserves us for eternity. And we are totally dependent upon that grace. And to augment his grace, we are dependent upon God's sovereign authority. Now that's descriptor number four, verses 20 through 22. 20 says, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his Lord. Watch what happens. He starts with the angels, then he goes to the mighty ones. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts. Now we're talking about a much larger group. His ministers are a larger group yet, who do his will. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we see God's sovereignty over all all of his works, and all of his dominion. What is his dominion? His dominion is all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. Now, we need to understand that because if God isn't sovereign over everything, he is not sovereign at all, and he's not God. So, you know, we well, why is he sovereign over everything? Well, he owns everything. And well, why does he own everything? Who says God owns everything? Well, he owns everything because he created it. He created everything. Everything that is and was and will be was created in and through Jesus Christ. So God has complete authority over every facet of creation. And so we need to think about this. We need to think about this because, you know, sometimes in our human reasoning, we believe that there are areas that God's not sovereign over. Every time I talk about sovereignty, somebody writes me a note or gives me a call and says something like, well, God wasn't sovereign over Hitler. Yes, he was. And how do we know God was sovereign over Hitler? Uh, because God was sovereign over Pharaoh. And God says he sets up kings and he takes down kings. God was sovereign over Syria and Assyria and the Chaldeans, and the Babylonians, whom he sent against his people. Think about that. God sends him against his people, 
and then punishes them for what they do. And we need to we need to understand exactly what happened there when God sends these people against his people. It's an act of God's love. It's not God being mad and, and punish him. It's an act of God's love saying, you've turned away from me. And I will do what I have to do in order to get you to turn back to me. It's a gesture of love of what is best for his people. Yes, there's going to be some pain in the interim. Yes, there's going to be some grief. But ultimately, they will turn back to him and have the best of intentions from God. So so the, the, this idea of God's sovereignty just needs to sink into us. And uh, if we understand uh, Pharaoh, if we understand all of these nations that came against his people, then we understand that God is sovereign over our situation as well. What does that mean? That means when things happen that make me uncomfortable, uh, when things happen that drive me to our knees, it's because God loves me. It's because God wants me closer to him and I've allowed other things to creep into my life and come in between me and him. And he wants me back. So God is sovereign over all things because of his love. And so here we are ending this psalm where we began, praising God with a deep sense of gratitude, thankful that his angels do his word, thankful that they obey his voice, grateful that all his ministers and a host of heaven do his will, and appreciative of all he does everywhere in his dominion, which is all of creation. It's the truth that believers know deep down in our soul. And the more thankful we, we become, the more it rings true. God is sovereign over all creation, all of it. If he's not, he's not God. So we've seen these four descriptors of God in our relationship. We've seen our total commitment. Uh, when we give ourselves to him, when we surrender our desires, our idea of how things should be, when we slow down enough to focus on him, enough to hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit whispering to us, leading us, telling us to pour out our love for him the same way he pours out his love for us, we begin to see his grace for what it is, unmerited love that flows from him because of who he is, not who we are. That's something we need to think about as well. God loves us because of who he is, not who we are. We need to understand God's love. You know, God doesn't need us. There's no point where the people in heaven are going, gee, we need that guy up here. What do we got to do to get him up here? God does not need us. He is totally self-sufficient, totally sustaining himself. He does not need us. And while that may be a little uncomfortable at first, if you stop to think about it, it makes the love he has for us incredibly profound. He doesn't need us, but he loves us so much that he's brought us into union with his son and with himself. Not because he needed us, but because he loved us. And so we don't add anything to him. We don't make God better. We don't make him bigger. But we do get to be part of him and his son. Uh, so we saw his total grace. His grace covers everything, every infraction. And it is total. It is totally perfect, totally pure. Paul says it is sufficient in 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Uh, Paul, he had this thorn in his side. We're familiar with that. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't heal the thorn. He says, you know, is that what you need, Paul? 
you've received my grace. Do you need my grace now? And do you need this healing? Uh, Or is my grace enough for you? His grace should be sufficient. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. God's grace flows freely from him because of who he is, and it covers our sin completely. As Christians, we receive God's grace and live like people who are thankful because we are totally dependent upon him. There is nothing we can do to generate grace, to make ourselves more worthy of it. We are totally dependent upon God being God, completely dependent upon his steadfastness and his truth. We are incredibly helpless to save ourselves, and even more so, we are incredibly enabled to live in his presence forever by anything that we do. So we see that it's a good thing that he is sovereign. His total, his sovereignty is total. The Bible uses the term Lord God or sovereign over 300 times. We've got to think about this term Lord God because it's really there frequently. And when, when the Bible tells us that he is Lord God, it's saying he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now we know those words and they kind of roll off our back rather relatively easy, but he is a Lord of all Lords. He's the King of all kings. He has authority of all authorities, and he has authority and dominion over everything. And what those terms describe is his ultimate and complete authority over all kings, all lords, all kingdoms, all systems, everything ever created. He has authority over everything because it all belongs to him, even you and me. Now, we should find comfort in that. We should find comfort in his sovereignty, and in his unending grace. So how do, I, how do I describe God? Well, this, what we've just heard, this is the image of God that he demands that we see. This is how we describe him, the way he describes himself. No, no, we don't get to draw a picture. And the reason we don't get to draw a picture of him is we don't get to define him, but we do get to enjoy him. But that joy comes with an incredible price, a price that none of us could pay ourselves. So God sent his only son to pay that price for us, for you and me, so that we could join him in eternity forever. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. Father, we give you thanks for all these attributes that describe you, for for the magnitude of your love and for the extent of your sovereignty, which covers everything. We give you thanks and we depend on it, Father. We depend upon it for you. We pray this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. 
We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.